It's a special joy to be here this morning and an honour, really, to be back. Uh, it seems uh, as though I was here, not infrequently, uh, years ago, but uh, life has changed and my world has changed. Uh, it's very special to, uh, to uh, be recognised, as you did this morning, for our relationship with some of the folk here and for Rob in particular. And uh, what a blessing it's been to see uh, God uh, multiply uh, many of the work and I'd like to just share something of that challenge with you this morning but what a blessing to come to a church where there's such a focus on the great missionary tasks that Jesus left for us and uh, as uh, Graham uh, brought the report uh, my heart rejoiced and I thought to myself I wonder how many churches in the city of Melbourne have reports like that on the fifth Sunday that's amazing and I pray that God will continue to multiply you and use you greatly, actually. And uh, I'd like to talk about that kind of multiplication this morning. It's uh, kind of been a, a blessing to me over the years to have watched uh, the ministry of Monty here, as we refer to it, and uh, for the uh, many lives that you have touched and for the vision that you've passed on to others. So thank you for that. And especially I want to say thank you for the way you have uh, cared for uh, our Wycliffe folk and uh, for your concern for them. That's been a great blessing. And as I saw the photo of Liz there this morning, along with Dave and Ellie, I thought what a blessing for them to know that you are so with them. Liz has just uh, had such a wonderful ministry in consulting and helping folk with the computer and uh, all that that's been involved in. That's become like our right hand in so much of our translation work today and she's right there to help our folk and we really bless the Lord for that. This morning I'd like us to turn to uh, John's Gospel, Chapter 6 and I'd like to read you the first few verses of that together. I'd like us in some ways to be able to Think about this passage as though we were hearing it for the very first time. I can assure you somewhere around the world today there are people who are having John's Gospel read, some of them for the very, very first time. And they're hearing this amazing story. And we've heard it many times. But now it's our turn to revisit it. But uh, let's think of it in the freshness of the magnificence of this wonderful incident in the life of Jesus, his disciples, and the crowd that day. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, and a great multitude was following him, because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. 
Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus therefore took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had and were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This of a truth is the prophet who is to come into the world. May God help us as we come to this passage this morning, as the Spirit of God reminds us of some of these very wonderful components that are in this story. I pray our hearts will be greatly blessed. One of the things that is significant is that this gospel was the last gospel to be written. The others had all been written, and John is now on the Isle of Patmos. He's been removed from Ephesus, where he was the bishop, and he's got a lot of time to think. And it was in in that kind of context, of course, that he wrote also the Revelation. But it's very fascinating because as John thinks back, he thinks of the miracles that Jesus performed while he was here. Now, out of all of the miracles that he performed, he chose to record in the Gospel of John just seven miracles of all the miracles. And he brings up these seven miracles. Interestingly enough, John looks at them and he says, they were miracles, but they were more than miracles. He says, they were signs. And so we see that for each of the miracles that John records, he's thinking of what that sign really meant. He turned the water into wine. And as he turned the water into wine, he took what was the law, which was the water to wash with, that was the law, he turned it into wine, and so it went from the law to grace. And that was the sign. At the end of the of that wedding feast, it says, the disciples saw the sign that he worked. It was more than just a miracle. He had led them into another depth of great meeting. The second miracle, he talks about the nobleman's son, who was healed and he's talking about the gospel having and restoring spiritual life that was the sign that John saw there he healed a paralytic man and uh, this was the sign that he was taking something that was so weak and showed that he could turn it into strength this was the sign of that miracle then there was the feeding of the 5,000 and on that in particular case He showed that here was actually the creator right here on planet Earth working a miracle as he had done right at the very beginning in putting this planet in place. He walked on the water. And that was to show the sign that it was moving from fear to faith. They were afraid of that situation and uh, Jesus was wanting them to understand the sign was to lead them to faith. The healing of the blind man was to show that Jesus overcomes and uh, the darkness and brings light. And then the resurrection of Lazarus. He said the sign was that the gospel brings people from death to life. And so John looks back 
He said, oh, yes, far more than miracles. He manifested who he was, but each of those miracles were a sign that was far deeper than just what was on the surface. This morning I'd like us to take a few moments to think about what it was so important and so significant when he fed the 5,000 people. And uh, it's a very fascinating insight to uh, the whole of Jesus interacting with his disciples. It was the Passover time. This was the second Passover in Jesus' ministry time. And at that time, Jesus really performed the royal Passover out there on the hillside. And uh, the thing was that... uh, He had this amazing setting. He started with his disciples, but the crowd came. The scripture is very clear. There were 5,000 men, it says, and so many have thought it probably was probably double that number with the women and children that would have been there on that day. So this was a huge crowd that were there. There was a lesson for his disciples that day, but may I submit it's a lesson for us in our day as we look into the truth of this wonderful, wonderful story, this wonderful incident. And Jesus says to Philip, let's go ahead and feed these people. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, so that was right close to where they were at that particular time. So he knew the villages that were around there, along with Andrew and Peter. They came from there too. And so he says, you know, uh, let's go ahead and feed them. And uh, he says... I know the villages around here. There's not in a way in the world that we could ever get the supplies to be able to feed this great crowd. And so Philip, if you will, moves into the realm of the logic. He wants to logically put this thing together. And so as he thinks about this, he thinks that uh, this is different. I know Jesus is very special, and I can't quite understand why he would ask me to do that. Philip was the one that when Jesus called him to be a disciple, he went off, as you'll recall, and said to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, come and meet the Messiah. This is the one that Moses spoke about. He said, he's here. And he recognized him. And so, if you will, Philip was kind of on his journey in understanding who Jesus was. But this day, this was over the top to ask him to do this. And so, Jesus uses the opportunity for us to see something, again, of the logic of man and the divine, wonderful thinking and planning that Jesus was going to introduce. So Philip says, let's send them home. Uh, Let's just look after ourselves. That's what we should do. Uh, I mean, this is too big for us. Let's send them home. That was Philip's logic. But Jesus' heart was, no, no. I've got compassion for these people. I want to demonstrate my compassion. That was the divine side at that moment dealing with the logic that Philip brought up. Philip Philip said, let us not get involved in this. And Jesus said, if you will cooperate with me, then he said, we can do this. He said, logically, Five loaves and two fishes and almost 10,000 people. It just doesn't compute. But Jesus was wanting to show on the divine side his incredible ability to be able to provide. Logic says you can't do it. Jesus says with my provision we can do it. We can do it together. 
And, you know, Philip steps up uh, like the average church meeting and says, it's not in the budget. <laughs> if we had eight months of, of, uh, of salary, we could never do this. And Jesus wants at that moment to step over into the divine and say, you can't dollarize this. You can't put a value on what I'm about to do. It's not to be counted in money. And so he says, Philip's saying to himself, it is really too big. It is just too big to do. And Jesus really is there and he is the creator of the universe. He threw the stars into place. He put the whole thing together. And so he's saying, we can do this. And the creator was about to show his great creativity. And John, as the old man recording this, he's thinking about this. And he's thinking, it's so right that I've called him the word of God. The word that was spoken, the word that put this whole magnificent creation into place. When you think of it, you see a word is something very, very powerful. And in the work of Bible translation, uh, it's so very significant that we find the right words to communicate. You see, a word is a vehicle that takes meaning from my mind to your mind. It's carried by a word. And Jesus was here because people didn't know who God really was. They knew he was a spirit. They knew you couldn't see him. But Jesus burst into our history 2,000 years ago to be able to reveal what God looked like. And he says, he who's seen me has seen the Father. And so here we have this magnificent picture that, uh, that, uh, of how on that day, Philip is thinking of the logic and Jesus is beginning to introduce them to the wonderful opportunity for God to work and work through them. I mean, if he'd have thought back, he would have realized that even back then, as we have it recorded in, in Second Kings chapter 4, how it was that uh, Elisha had those sons of uh, the prophets and he was looking after them. And, uh, but he was running out of food and someone brought a whole bunch of food and he looked and he said, it's not going to feed these hundred people. And so we're told that as they passed out and as the food was given to these hundred, the sons of the prophets, they were fed. And the scripture goes on to say they were fed and they had enough and there was left over. And if Philip thought about that, maybe he thought this could happen again, but he missed the point and he, he lived with his logic. And so we today, we, I believe, need to be able to look at our world and it's so easy, if I might say, to look at it with sheer logic and say the task is too big. It's enormous. We can't do it. Let's just settle for our own little Jerusalem. Sadly, there's a word that's coming to our evangelical uh, vocabulary which I think has helped us miss the point. We talk about the word missional uh, and we're involved in missional when that really means we're just looking after ourselves. And we've lost the great dimension that Jesus didn't say, well, take care of Jerusalem first when you've taken care of that. Then I want you to go to Judea. And when you've taken care of that, go on to Samaria. And when that's all taken care of, go to the uttermost parts of the world. Jesus didn't say that. He said, no, he said, I want you to my wit be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria 
and to the uttermost part of the world. This was the all-embracing vision that Jesus wanted for his church and wants for us at Monty, wherever we are today. He still has this big picture. And God's still about doing some miraculous things today that is just amazing, and we need to be encouraged by that. If I were to ask you this morning, what country in the world is the country where the church is growing the fastest and the biggest? I wonder what the answers might be. So often it's China, and so often uh, it may be other places, but I want to tell you that where the church is growing the greatest today is in Iran. Can you imagine that? With all of the incredible pressures, with all of the, the cruelty that's going on in that place, the church is growing at 19% a year in Iran. God is working. He's still in the business. And we need to be part of that as God gives us that opportunity. So we need to think very seriously about the fact that we, and it's a joy to be with you, where you have the vision of, of the Jerusalem and going on out to the end of the world and bringing this good news. And I want to encourage you in doing that. So John reflects on that sign, the miracle of reaching the world. You see, he was the sovereign God in Jesus, and he knew it all, and he had a very clear uh, Disclosure that he wanted to make to the church. So here we have the disciples who had already seen him, as a matter of fact, feed the 4,000, and now they're brought once more to the point of seeing him work this new miracle. And he was about to do that. And uh, he knows how he's going to feed the multitudes today too, and his pattern is still working. I'm encouraged at some things that are happening today. For instance, in this world today, there's something like between 250 and 300 million people who are totally deaf. Let me say that again. 250 to 300 million people who are totally deaf. And they they will never hear of Jesus because they can't hear. But not only that... In our world today, this is something like we've been doing research of this because we're very concerned about this in Wycliffe. We are concerned to find at least right now something like 400 different sign languages in the world. Can you imagine that? Out at Kangaroo Ground right now, there are two young men out there that God has touched in a very special way. And they're working to be able to put the uh, sign languages onto video so that we can give the gospel to these people who otherwise will never hear. Isn't that exciting? I appreciate your enthusiasm this morning. (laughs) That's exciting to think that we're going to be able to reach these people. But I want to tell you, it's, it's hard work to learn a sign language. It's hard work then to put it in a way that people can really have it communicated to them. One of the things that is very challenging and, and very insightful is that this is, the only, this is the only miracle in the New Testament that is written of by the four writers. It's only these, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they write about this miracle. That's the only miracle the four of them write about. So no doubt it made a great, great impression on them as they were part of that on, on that particular day. But we have this wonderful word here that I want to encourage us with this morning Jesus said to Philip let's go ahead and feed these people and then John 
in his old age, looking back, he remembers something that, about that. And he says it this way, for Jesus knew what he was going to do. The disciples didn't, but Jesus knew what he was going to do. And John records that. And he says, that's amazing. He knew what he was going to do all along. And today he's saying that to us again. He said, I already know what I'm going to do. I just want you to be part of it with me. That's the significant part. And so it, we're told that uh, John tells us something else that is very interesting because it's only John who records that it was a little boy who had his lunch. All the others miss out on that. But here, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about that little boy because of him being available with that little lunch. Isn't that amazing? And because he gave that little lunch into the hands of Jesus, it fed the whole multitude. And therein is a fabulous secret. It's what we put into the hands of Jesus that he can take and use. He can't use it until we put it into his hands. But because he did it that day, I think of that little boy. I mean, it must have been quite an amazing experience for that boy to be there. I mean, obviously, his mother sent him off with lunch that day. And here it is now nighttime, and there's time for everyone to have the evening meal. And he's still got his lunch. Uh, something, he's a different kind of a kid. He didn't uh, have his lunch. He waited, and here it was available. And John records that. And he says that was the very, very significant part. You see, I want to remind us this morning that each of us really do have something to put into the hands of Jesus. And sometimes we don't think of how valuable it is because we think it's just too small or I'm nobody, I'm nothing. No, 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 that's not it. Because when we come to Ephesians chapter 4, not only does it tell us in that chapter that when we come to Christ and we make him the Lord of our life and our Saviour, he gives us a gift. And then we come in chapter in the chapter four, in chapter three, it says, uh, chapter two, I should say, eight, nine, and ten. It gives us these wonderful verses. It says that God has created us for the gifting that He's given us, and He tells us very, very clearly that uh, this is not only did He give us a gift, but He created us so for good works. But it says here, he created the good works for us beforehand. So God doesn't get up and look over the parapet of heaven and say, well, there's Mary down there, I better get something for her to do today. Or there's Joe over there, I better get something for him to do today. No, if we belong to him, he's already done that. Think about that. That's how important we are. He's already planned our lives and he wants us to walk into that plan. And I'm encouraged by that. I want to just take a couple of moments uh, just to encourage us to get a feel for how very, very significant it is for us to do this. I was sitting in my office out at Kangaroo Ground one day and a young fellow came in to the office and he said, uh, you know, he said, I've heard about Bible translation and he said, I would really like to be involved in that. I said, really? I said, that's wonderful. I said, what what are you doing right now? And he said, well, actually, he said, I'm just studying for my PhD. And uh, and I said, a PhD, would it be in linguistics? He said, no, it's in mathematics. And I said, well, that's wonderful. I said, mathematics and linguistics are kid brothers, so that's, that's wonderful. 
And uh, so I said, let's talk about that. And he said, and the more we talked, the more he knew that this is what God had for him. Uh, then I got a telephone call uh, from his father. And his father said, I don't know what you're doing to my son, but he said, I, I, I want you to stop doing it because uh, I've just had a telephone call from his professor telling me that he's a brilliant boy. His thesis is going to make history. And he said, he's kind of losing interest. I don't know what it is, but you find out what it is and you stop it. And he said to me, I want you to stop this. And I said, well, actually, uh, I don't think it's really from me. I've given him some information, but after that, uh, this has been his decision. He went ahead and he finished his PhD, a great PhD, a doctor in mathematics. And then God brought him to us and we trained him in linguistics and he went off to the mission field. First to help with the Aborigines, then up to Papua New Guinea to, new, to be involved in finishing a New Testament up there on one of the islands and then came home when his family was back, uh, needed to go through education. And uh, while he was there, he was thinking to himself, Lord, I have this mathematics and now I have this linguistics. And uh, God said, put it into my hands. So he put it into the hands of Jesus. And Jesus helped him. And he began to write a program that was going to help in translating two languages that are like each other. For instance, German and English. They're they're what we call very close languages. Really, they belong to the same language family. And so he said, I could put a program together that would take this language if it's been translated. And if this is a language that's related, he said, I could make a program that would move this language over to this language. And he worked on that. And so it was that he developed this program so that what would happen was the translator would be typing in this New Testament that's now finished. And so in the beginning was the word. And then he would trans, he would begin over on this one here and say, in the beginning was the word in the new language. But this was relating to the first language here. And this lang- this computer over here was learning from this computer. And so he would go on a little bit further. And as it learned over here, after a while, he would start translating, writing what he wants here. And it would just come up on the other screen. And so he called it adapted. Adapting one to the other. And this meant that in some of the languages we have done in literally months what it would have taken us to do years. Can you imagine that? So he took that little bit that he gave to him, what he put into the hands of Jesus. Today it's being used by many, many people. He's just been overseas right now working with other people. And, uh, you know, I've met up with people in Africa that said, do you know Bruce Waters? I said, yeah, I know Bruce. He said, we're using Adapted here. I go someplace, say, oh, do you know Bruce Waters? Oh, yeah, I know Bruce Waters. Well, we're using Adapted here. Amazing. And he's feeding the 5,000. Amazing. God wants to take what we've got. And sometimes we don't even realize what we've got that God wants to take and he wants to use. I want to encourage you. Ellis Dibler, one of my colleagues in Papua New Guinea, 
I will never forget he came to me one day when I was visiting up there and he said, David, he said, you know, frankly, he said, I think I have really probably wasted my life. I should have stayed in the United States as a Presbyterian minister. But he said, I did feel the call of God to be out here in Papua New Guinea and I've learnt this language, I've translated the scriptures and virtually there's been no response. And he was feeling frustrated. He said, David, he said, when you go back home, he said, get God's people to pray for these people that the word of God would be really coming alive. Well, that was kind of a burden to think that after 19 years he was feeling this way. But he'd given it to the Lord, and there it was. Sometime later, I was back there, and he said to me, he said, David, he said, I want to tell you. He said, you know, every Saturday I go to the marketplace there in Garoka, and I sell, try to sell the scriptures, and he said, there's been very little interest. But she, he said, not so long ago I was there, and this young lady came up with her string billum over her shoulder, and she said, are you Ella Stibler? He said, yes. She said, I've been wanting to meet you. He said, really? She said, yes. She said, I did want to meet you. And then she reached into the balloon and pulled out the New Testament that he translated. And he was kind of amazed. He looked at it and it had been well worn, as a matter of fact. And she said, I wanted to meet you because, you see, uh, I'm a school teacher. And I was teaching English in my particular school. And he said, one day, this book was on my desk. She said, I have no idea how it got there, who put it there. And I just looked at it and I thought, I don't know what that is. And suddenly she realized she was reading her own language. And she said, I picked it up and I started to read it. And she said, I took it home and I read it and I read it and I read it. She said, it was so wonderful. She said... I don't know how to say it, she said, but it was as though the Spirit of God came all over me. And uh, she said, it was so wonderful. So she said, I would go after school to village after village and gather the people together. We sit under the trees and I'd read it to them. And she said, the same things happened to them. The Spirit of God has come over them. And I was blessed. Alice was blessed. And the feeding of the 5,000 was taking place again, you see, because what he had put into the hands of Jesus, he had taken, and he was doing it in his own way. I want to encourage you that God wants to take whatever gift you have, and he will use it. A very, very dear friend of mine, in fact, uh, my mentor, actually, for some 17 years, was a man that some of you older people will know, was Alfred Coombe, here in this city. And uh, Alfred Coombe was uh, a very special man in my life and, and uh, as chairman of Wycliffe Bible Translators. Uh, and he told me he was a very quiet man. Uh, he didn't have a son, and I was kind of like a son to him, so we would talk together many times. He told me how it was that he went out when he was just a young man a young businessman, to visit his brother Jack up on the Nepal border, up there in, in Nepal and India. And as he saw what his brother was doing there as a missionary, he thought to himself, that's exactly what I need to do. I need to go home, I need to finish my business, and I need to uh, come back here and help my brother Jack. 
He was travelling on the train in India that day that he remembers so well and it was as clear as he was hearing a voice but it was spoken to his heart. He said, Alfred, I don't want you to go out there with Jack. I want you to give your business acumen to me. Put it in my hands. And he did. He came home here, became a very successful businessman and... uh, so, so successful that during the Second World War, every bale of wool that went out of this country went out under his signature. He was totally in charge of the wool trade for the government during the Second World War. He would have today be called a very wealthy man, but he didn't die a wealthy man because he gave hundreds of thousands of dollars away to the Lord's work. You see, God multiplied through him, and 5,000 again have been touched because God used a businessman. And I think there's a lot of businessmen in this city that haven't begun to realize what they could do if they just put that business into God's hand and let him multiply it for the sake of the kingdom. He wants to do that. And uh, we need to be encouraging God's people in that way. So this morning, my concern is that we as a people might really fully understand that uh, God wants to take us. He wants to use us. He wants to use the gift he's given us. And uh, the amazing thing is that Jesus could have just, when he turned the water into wine, he could have done it a very different way. (coughs) Pardon me. He could have done it a different way. He could have said, uh, pass me that, that water skin there. He could have just tipped it up, beautiful, beautiful wine. But no, he had the men involved in helping him. On that day, he could have fed the 5,000 in a very miraculous way, but no, he had the disciples help him. He, all the time, used his people to help him. When Lazarus was to be restored to life, he could have just in a flash, he could have had that stone disappear, but no, he had the men roll the stone away to participate in the miracle. He wants us to participate in the miracle. And he wants your life, and he wants my life. And uh, we don't want to be like the crowd that day. They missed it. They came the next day and they said, oh, that was great. That was a great feed you gave us. Do it again. Oh, he said, you missed the point totally. He said, I didn't want that to be the central point. I wanted to let you know that I am the bread of life. And so he set the stage for his true meaning. God wants to set that true meaning for you in your life and my life and that we might count for the 5,000 that are still waiting to hear. May God continue to bless you as a fellowship with your vision. But my prayer is that he will multiply you in a bigger way than you've ever thought for the sake of the 5,000 that are still waiting. Let's pray together, shall we? In the quietness of this moment, if it is that God has spoken to you and he's touched something in your life with the gifting that you have, that uh, he's saying, I want you to put it into my hands, just like the little boy did so long ago. At that moment, he's ready to work the miracle, the sign that he's the creator and can multiply. Heavenly Father, this morning we ask that you would hear our prayer, that we might be a people 
who long for the creator of the universe to take our lives and use us. You've said that you've prepared us for good works. They're already prepared. Help us have a passion and a desire to move into all that you have for us so that we might fulfill all that you want to do in us and through us, individually and as a fellowship. We ask these things in your wonderful, powerful name. Amen.